Lovely. <clears throat> Thank you, Jonathan. Uh, as I said, it's me again. Um, <laughs> sorry about that. Um, my uh, one, nearly two-year-old, if I talk too much or, or sometimes sing out of tune at home, she just goes, stop. Um, so if you get the urge to do that, <laughs> maybe wait to the end. <laughs> or you'll be on the thinking step. Uh, no, um, <laughs> let's, uh, let's pray together. Lord, we just ask for your Holy Spirit to be with us now. We pray, come Holy Spirit. May we have ears that listen and hearts open to all you want to say to us this morning. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Uh, so as I said at the beginning, I wonder uh, how you're getting on uh, with Revelation so far. I hope you're uh, getting on with it okay if you've uh, dared to sort of open the back uh, of the Bible uh, and have a look. Uh, I remember when we read it through as a staff team, uh, what feels like forever ago, but it was a few months ago now. Uh, there were passages that I'd um, uh, remembered, uh, I hadn't read for a while, but I remembered them, uh, and others I'd not remembered so well and suddenly thought we'd sort of mistakenly open Lord of the Rings or something. Um, so if you do come across those passages, do not worry. Uh, all will be revealed shortly. Um, we were reminded uh, and encouraged last week uh, through John's vision uh, and these messages to the seven churches, and in particular uh, the churches in Philadelphia and Laodicea, of this announcement that seems to be coming through loud and clear, uh, that there is encouragement for us not to try and be self-sufficient, uh, but instead to rely on God for all that we need. And there was also this reminder that Jesus had, has opened the door for us to have a relationship with him. Revelation 3.20 tells us the way is clear for relationship with Jesus, and we just have to answer. In one sense, it's no more complicated than responding to this invitation. You know, when we respond to an invitation to go somewhere... We have to give something of ourselves, don't we? We have to commit our, 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 our time, our resources. And Jesus' invitation is no different. It's an invitation, though, to a lifelong and life-giving relationship with him. And it's the best invitation that we could ever accept. In our passage for today, we find scrolls and lambs and eyes and horns and all this is kind of striking imagery, but what's it all about? Well, I think the central focus, the, sort of the beating heart, if you like, of the whole of Revelation, and the key to this passage in particular, is given to us in the opening words of the very first verse of the book. This is a revelation of Jesus Christ. And Revelation is exactly that. It's a grand revealing, a great unveiling of who Jesus is. God's anointed or chosen one who in his death and resurrection fulfilled all the things promised to God's chosen people in the Old Testament. Jesus atoned for or made amends for his people's sins and set them apart to be a priestly people, to be this outstanding example of what it meant to follow him and to be in relationship with him. But the saving grace of God in the person of Jesus Christ totally transformed this hope so that these people aren't just from one ethnic group, but from all people across all the earth so that they and so that we might offer God's love 
and faithfulness to every corner of his world. The visions we read about in Revelation help us uh, help communicate that message and help us to understand it better if we're prepared to take the time to take a closer look. Uh, so if you're ready, uh, let's go. Firstly, let's um, have a look at how this particular passage helps us with understanding Jesus. Uh, beginning in chapter 1, we're able to understand more about Jesus' divine identity, the, the nature of who he is. And this isn't just a book that we can uh, associate with wild imagery and destruction. Uh, it actually helps us understand and wrestle with the nature of who Jesus is, which is um, pretty important, isn't it, if we're going to shape our lives on the principles and the person of Jesus. Because of who he is, Jesus brings the power of divine presence, but he also mediates between the human and the divine. We learn through Revelation that Jesus is coming again. We learn that evil will be judged and that the dead will be raised to judgment, which will result in either eternal life or eternal destruction. We also learn of the infinite love and power and justice of Jesus. And this isn't just a, a timetable of destruction or you know, a countdown of doom and damnation upon us all. The book proclaims the victory of Jesus, the love of Jesus for each one of us and how we're invited in. We're not coerced or controlled or manipulated or deceived, but we're invited into this relationship with our Creator, our Savior, the reason that we're all here in the first place. And so here in chapter 5 and, and throughout the book of Revelation, the central image is of Jesus as the slain lamb, the one who exercises his power and authority through sacrifice giving up his life, but who has now overcome death and shares the throne with God, his Father. In Jesus, there is victory over every single force and influence that oppose the purposes of God because of his death on the cross. And therefore, the gift and the promise of victory over death is ours too. And the Holy Spirit living in us gives us the tools that we need to live a life like the one Jesus lived. He's our benchmark and our example. And we can be more like him each day, can't we? If we accept the Spirit into our hearts to work in our lives. It's widely thought that John wrote Revelation uh, in AD 95. Uh, and in John's day, books were uh, written on scrolls. Uh, you can buy them from Amazon. Uh, but they were written on scrolls about uh, 30 feet long uh, and sealed with wax or, or clay. And they were held in the left hand and unrolled with the right hand, uh, with the previous portion sort of being, I don't think I could do it. Um, pre I'm just about to turn a page in a book. Um, previous portion being rolled up. So you'd roll it up. Oh, there we go. Read that bit. I've done that bit. And you sort of do a weird... 
I don't, I, I don't know whether I'm doing, I just look like a cat or something. Um, but that's how they would read uh, the scrolls. And this particular scroll that we uh, see in chapter 5, it's quite unusual um, because it's been written on on both sides, not one side only. Can you imagine? Try- anyway, I can't. Um, so there's clearly a lot of information to impart, almost, almost too much for this scroll to hold. And over the centuries, there's been lots of argument uh, and debate among theologians over what the scroll might actually contain. Uh, Some suggest it was the Old Testament or the New Testament or kind of both. Um, Some say it was the text of Revelation itself or details of God's rejection of Israel. The question would be for those things, though, who would be unworthy to, to open that particular scroll? Apparently, no one. Um, But that doesn't really sort of make sense. It's more likely that the scroll contains some sort of account of what God has in store for the world. The idea being that God already knows the history of the universe. He's written it in advance, and he holds the hands of history of the world, in his hands, the history of the world. And, And we see only God can hold this scroll and the seven seals that are on it, which guard its contents. And we read in verse 1 that it's held in the right hand of God, who is sitting on the throne in the position of all power and authority. And so I think the emphasis and the kind of important point here is, is not necessarily the contents, but it's more the one who is able to open it. Its contents will be revealed once and for all following death. And more precisely, the death of the Lamb, Jesus. But if Jesus kind of has died, why should we look to him? Well, it doesn't really make sense. Why should we be following Jesus? Sounds like a bit of a failure somewhere. Well, in verse 6, John tells us that he sees a lamb standing as though it has been slain. In the middle of this grand throne room scene. But Jesus has just been described as the Lion of Judah. And so which one is it? Is John sort of tripping out a bit too much here? Of course, the lion symbolizes authority and power, and the lamb symbolizes Jesus' submission to his Father's will. One of the elders says, look at the lion. But when John looks, he sees the lamb the sacrifice of Jesus for all the sins of the world forevermore. And so only he can save us from what might be contained in the future history of the world and of our lives without him. Christ as the lion is victorious because of what Christ the lamb has done. And the best news, the best news is that we are invited to participate in and be part of this victory. Not because we're good or because of our efforts or our bank balance or our influence or our good looks, but because he has promised life forever, life in eternity for all who believe in him. And the lamb looks slain, but it's still standing. He's standing. And there will be a time when the world will recognize that. But in the meantime, it has to start with us. Committing to follow him each day when the world says, 
we don't really need church. We don't really need Jesus. And now this part of uh, John's vision reaches its crescendo as it describes the horns and the eyes of the Lamb, which, is, uh, which are symbols of Jesus' strength and his power. The Lamb, Jesus, takes the scroll, demonstrating not only that he's worthy to take it, but also the one who is worthy to reveal its contents. And this glorious scene of praise erupts, celebrating God's saving of his people and declaring the work of Christ. He was slain, but by his sacrifice we were gathered into his family and then finally into his kingdom to reign with him. And that's the future that he's got planned for us, to join him in the final victory over sin and pain and death and destruction. And the word reign is used seven times throughout Revelation, a number in the Bible that symbolizes completeness and protection, uh, and protection. And it's always used of God, of the Lamb, and of his followers, anticipating their shared reign in the new Jerusalem. And so I wonder if we can just sort of, as, as we come to a close, just let that sink in for a moment. That those who follow Jesus will reign with him for all time. How? Because Jesus has redeemed us. He saved us. He's compensated for all the bad stuff. He's wiped away all our wrongdoing in order that we can be drawn into the perfect love of God. Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. And this song of heaven honors the price of redemption because it was Jesus who was put to death. It honors the scope and the scale of this redemption as it's for every tribe and tongue and nation. And it honors the result of redemption because we will reign with him. And we've got a further reminder here of the nature of Jesus himself. One theologian puts it like this. Now, he says, if Jesus were not properly God, this would be idolatry, as it would be giving to the creature what belongs to the creator. And so in a nutshell, um, probably just like every good Sunday school answer, it's all about Jesus. The 19th century um, English preacher Charles Spurgeon encourages us to make worshipping Jesus the central and most important activity of our lives. He says, depend upon it. You will never go to heaven unless you're prepared to worship Jesus Christ as Lord. If you entertain the notion that he is a mere man or that he's anything less than God, I'm afraid you'll have to begin at the beginning and learn what true religion means. I could not trust my soul with a mere man or believe in an atonement made by a mere man. I must see God himself putting his hand to so gigantic a work. Jesus is to be reckoned with in this combined worship of both Father and the Lamb. Jesus is the one through whom we can know God more fully. And by following Jesus, by imitating him, by allowing his Holy Spirit to live within us and to guide us, 
we can know him more. We can understand his plan, our purpose, and our place in the world. Jesus holds our future, not Satan. And what we can say of Jesus in worship, we can say of God. And these scenes of heavenly worship following on from the royal proclamations to the seven cities at the beginning of chapter 5 has this really powerful resonance here and now. As followers and as imitators of Jesus, we're going to face both challenges and opportunities. The context for all of that, though, lies in the praise of God and of the Lamb, where we might feel we are the odd one out, swimming against the tide, being odd for God, we play our part in reconfiguring the world for our good and for his glory. The Bible tells us that all of creation is caught up in the worship of God, which is the extraordinary claim of Christianity, this countercultural contention to the perception of reality which often feels like the minority view. This vision of worship isn't offered though as simply as fact, but as a compelling call for those who read it to join in for themselves. We are invited to join in the story of Revelation, to be drawn into the loving heart of God. We may know what it's like to be crushed or downhearted or adrift. And yet we can experience the protection, the provision, and the power of God himself. We know how the story will end. We can be assured that the powers of oppression and justice will be, injustice will be defeated. And we will see the glory of the eternal city paved with gold. If we choose to make God's story, the story of revelation, our story. Because he already has. Amen.